0: We're going to hear uh, God's word read to us, though, in a moment. And, uh, but before we do that, uh, let me pray and ask God to soften our hearts as we hear uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10. So let's pray together. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for the privilege and blessing of knowing you through Jesus our Lord. Thank you for the sacrifice that he made on the cross for us. Thank you for your spirit that you have poured out on us. Thank you for your word. And we pray now that as we hear your word read and as we reflect on it together, you might be pleased to work among us powerfully by your spirit to shape us into those who you would have us be. Help us to trust you and to live in the light of your word. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. In his name, amen. we're going to have the Bible read for us now. Thank you, Maureen.
1: Thank you. Good morning. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, through to chapter 10, verse 13. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things, as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Maureen. Uh, Well, uh, a really, really great passage, uh, and we're thinking about today strict training. Uh, It's I think it's quite amazing and a little daunting to dig into the incredible training schedules that elite athletes. Um, go through. I don't know if you've ever kind of seen reports about this. They had this goal and they're kind of driven towards it. Uh, This is a picture of a note that, you can't really make it out, but it's a uh, note that swimmer Michael Phelps wrote when he was eight years old. and had it on his fridge and it would drive him on and uh, it says things like, uh, I would like to make the Olympics. Well, he's the most decorated Olympian of all time. Um, 28 medals, 23 of them gold. And his training was incredible. Uh, apparently, at this, the peak of his training, um, he was swimming, let me get this right, 80 kilometres a week, so that's six, no, 1,600 laps of a 50-metre pool, which is about 230 laps a day, every day. Um, incredible. So, and the fastest human ever recorded, hopefully you can see this one, um, Usain Bolt, there he is. Uh, apparently would train so hard that he would be on the ground yelling in pain, not wanting to do another rep, but each time he got up and finished his training. Here he is at the 2008 Olympics, winning the 100 metres. And what we're told in this passage from 1 Corinthians is that the the Christian life is like this. The Christian life is like this. Uh, We've seen through these chapters that there's this theme running through of freedom, freedom, freedom. The freedom of the gospel is wonderful, and it's complete. In Christ, we have a whole new identity. We are secure. We are loved. We are washed. We are sanctified. We are justified. All this is done for us, and it's given to us freely as a gift through the Holy Spirit. And it raises the question, it kind of raises the natural question, if the gospel is all about what God has done by his grace... Does that mean how we live now just doesn't matter? How we live now just doesn't matter. And Paul's answer here and in other places in the New Testament is an emphatic no. Uh, It does matter. It matters deeply. Those who receive the free gift of the gospel are transformed by it. Uh, We are made new. And we're called to live out our new identity in Christ. And so hopefully you've seen that as we've looked through these chapters. Our freedom in Christ doesn't mean we just sit back and make life all about us and about enjoying our own rights and our own comforts. We are free to freely give up our rights for the sake of others, for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, so that in chapter 8, we're free to freely make ourselves slaves for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, so that they might know Jesus. Looked at that last week. And I think what's happening in this passage is that Paul keeps sort of pressing into this same idea of freedom, the freedom that changes us. Uh, the focus has been on our relationships with others, either those within the church or those outside. But in this passage, he shifts the focus. It's not now on our relationship to others, but on our relationship to ourselves, on our relationship to ourselves. Uh, And he uses Usain Bolt as his example. (laughs) Um, The Christian life, he says, is like a race. And he, he says the freedom of the gospel means we can run with our eyes on the finishing line, with our eyes on the prize. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, it's important not to push this image too far. He's not saying here that there's only one spot in heaven and we're all kind of competing for it. Uh, You know, kind of we're racing against each other. That's not what Paul's saying. Um, The prize is God's eternal kingdom, his new creation, where life will, will be what it was always meant to be, what we long for it to be. And that's a prize that is open to anyone and everyone through Jesus. And what Paul's urging us, though, here is that each one of us who are in Christ, who have this hope of glory, each of us should run our life with our eyes fixed on that coming future with the same focus and determination as Usain Bolt running to the finish line. That's, that's, that's how he's using this image. Um, athletes make sacrifices, right? And they discipline themselves for that goal. And it's really, I think it's great what Paul does in verse, verse 25. Um, athletic games were a big part of Greek culture. Uh, it's where, of course, it's where our Olympics came from, uh, comes from. Uh, and there was this big competition alongside the Olympic Games called the Isthmian Games, a bit of a mouthful, uh, but it was held in Corinth. If you, rem- if you remember that map we looked at a few weeks ago, Corinth is on an isthmus, a little land bridge in Greece. And there were these games that were held there every two years. It's possible um, that Paul attended one of these. Uh, and so it's sort of drawing on a well-known thing that was going on. And these games, they didn't, they didn't, didn't honour the second and third um, place winners. There was only one winner. And they would get this wreath... Uh, Apparently, uh, but apparently this wreath, I had a chuckle when I heard this, this wreath was made out of dried celery. So there you go, Um, go figure. Um, But but Paul makes this really striking contrast in verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, they get it for a crown that you can chew on on the way home, basically. They get it for a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So you see what Paul's doing here. He looks at these athletes who discipline themselves and work hard for a bit of celery. Um, Apparently, and this is a real thing, apparently post-Olympic Games depression is a very common thing for athletes. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Anyone seen that great sort of classic movie? It's about a Scottish Christian athlete called Eric Liddell. Uh, His main competitor is another runner called Harold Abrams. And Abrams is driven. He's obsessed with winning. And spoiler alert, it's been around a while, so I don't feel bad about it. Um, But he does win. He he wins the 100-metre race uh, at the Olympics. Uh, But as he's preparing for this race, he says... He says this in the movie, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. That was was his kind of driven determination. And he wins. And you see this moment in the movie. He wins. And he... He can't, he, he's, he's in despair afterwards. He, he ran for this crown that wouldn't last. He descends into despair after he wins. Uh, he, his whole existence is caught up in this to win this thing, this fleeting moment. There's an interesting contrast in this movie, though. Eric Liddell, he ends up winning the 400-metre race. Uh, here's an actual photo of, of it. Uh, and he does it in world record time uh, as a, if you know the story, amazing last-minute change. It wasn't a race he'd trained in. He was facing the world champions. He wins and sets a world record. But Eric, Liddell had his eyes on a different prize. He uh, he wasn't caught up in the praise of the people around him. He says he, he just runs for God's pleasure. And he shocked the world by announcing that soon after this, uh, he was going to move to China as a missionary where he spent the rest of his days and ended up dying in a prison camp in 1945. Incredible. And you know what happened to Eric Dell as he died in a prison camp? He received a far greater crown than something as small and fleeting as an Olympic gold medal or a world record. You know, the things that our, our world kind of holds up as the peak? They're just celery. And Paul's saying here, don't you realise, don't you realise that in Christ we have a crown, a goal, something to strive towards that is so much better than any earthly crown, so much more lasting and wonderful? And friends, I think this is really helpful for all of us. It's really helpful, especially when we think about the whole area of self-control, self-discipline. We don't really talk about it that much, but... Um, It's been interesting for me preparing this to realise actually self-control is a really important thing in the Bible. Um, Proverbs describes a person without self-control as like a city whose walls are broken down. So you're you're vulnerable (laughs) to attack any influence. Uh, Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So if God's at work in your life, you should expect and pray for a growing control over yourself over the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. I have a theory, a bit of a theory, uh, that this actually, the more I've thought about it, this actually is one of the most important practical spiritual issues for Christians. I might just be projecting my own weakness and struggle here on everyone else, uh, but I don't think so. I think this is actually a massive thing. The struggle for self-control is an ongoing, constant struggle For all of us, this side of glory. Uh, Because we still live in a fallen world. We are made new in Christ, but our old self still clings to us. And I think what Paul gives us here is so helpful. Uh, This kind of gospel-driven, spirit-empowered self-control and focus is deeply connected to our vision of the future, what your vision of the future? is It's connected to having our eyes fixed on the bright and certain hope that is in store for all of Jesus' people. Uh, that that's the consistent pattern for those elite athletes, right? And we saw it in that um, thing that Michael Phelps wrote when he was eight. Uh, they they had this picture of the future that drives them on in the present. Uh, so when they're getting up early to go to training or when they're pushing through doing their exercises, even when they don't feel like it, it's that vision of the future that kind of drives them on. Uh, and I think it's crucial for us, if if we're going to hear this word and pursue this a kind of spiritual training that God, through his apostle, is urging us to pursue, I think this is crucial. So friends... Uh, do you struggle with self control? I'm assuming the answer is yes. Maybe there are some among us who are just naturally very disciplined. Um, but you'll have your own issues with spiritual pride and self control in all other sorts of ways. All of us, all of us need to hear this. Uh, maybe you have old habits that you know aren't doing you any good, that actually leave you drained and feeling distant from God but that seemed to have a kind of hold on you, the first thing to do is to come back to the gospel. Uh, even right now, to ask God to fill your heart and your mind with the hope that is yours in Christ. And let that glorious coming future that is freely given to you in Christ... Let that shape how you live now. The more you see the goodness of that, the more you long for it, the less those other things will have a grip on you. Uh, You won't be looking so much to them to fill you up and give you rest because you'll be looking to Jesus instead, the one who alone gives true rest. So, athletes do it to get a crown that won't last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And that's really good news, isn't it? But in all of this, Paul's aware, he is aware of a danger. He's aware of a danger for himself, he's aware of a danger for all Christians. Verse 26. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. It's pretty devastating when an athlete you admire gets disqualified. Sometimes it's because of an accident, they've gone off too early. Other times it's more serious. I don't know if you remember Lance Armstrong, this incredible bike rider, came back from cancer to win the Tour de France seven times. Unbelievable. Uh, Then it was widely publicised. You know the story, um, many of us will. It came out that he'd been on performance-enhancing drugs through his career, uh, and he'd been actually helping to run a kind of syndicate amongst uh, elite athletes. So he was disqualified. He lost um, all all that he had uh, accomplished. Lots Lots of other examples. And Paul says he doesn't want to be like that in the Christian life. So this is, this is another powerful reason why he trains himself here and now, um, why he doesn't just give in to the desires of his body. And, you know, he switches his imagery from running to boxing, and the surprise is that the, 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 the person he's facing in the ring is himself. He, he's, he's facing himself himself. He knows that he's his own worst enemy in this fight. Uh, He knows, what did we just sing before, that beautiful song? He knows that his heart is prone to wander away from Christ. And so he consciously struggles with his self, spurred on by this desire not to be disqualified at the end. And I don't know about you, but you kind of think, this is Paul we're talking about. I mean, he wrote Romans, (laughs) Romans. he took the gospel to the world, he planted churches. If surely if anyone's a shoe-in, it's him, right? Well, not so, Paul says. And what he does next is he gives this really powerful illustration of people who, who seemed to be a shoe-in, but who did get disqualified. Uh, the people of Israel in the Exodus. Um, that's what he goes on to say at the start of chapter 10. He goes back to this great moment of God's salvation in the Old Testament where where Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, Verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. There's heaps in there, which we won't get into, um, but we can keep chewing over what the details of this means. It is interesting, though, isn't it, that uh, the church Paul's writing to was a mainly Gentile church, a non-Jewish church, and he highlights, uh, but do you see what he says about them? Our ancestors uh, he highlights the one united plan of God through Scripture. Uh, now in Christ, there is one new humanity, Jews and Gentiles united in him. Uh, so the Corinthians can see the people of God in the Old Testament as their spiritual ancestors. And Paul, what he, what he does is he, he highlights Israel's incredible privilege. They had experienced the, this salvation, this incredible salvation. The Corinthians had experienced the ultimate Outworking of God's salvation in Christ. But Israel had experienced an amazing salvation too. Like a foretaste of what was coming in Jesus. But here's this sting in the tail. Israel were wonderfully saved from slavery by God's grace. But verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. I think he's being a bit understated here. If you know the story, only two of them survived. He was not pleased with most of them. Well, yeah, a bit of an understatement. Only Joshua and Caleb make it through. Here's why this is so important for the Corinthians and for us to hear. Verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Your heart is so important. Uh, in the kind of way the Bible thinks about people, before you're, I think before you're a thinking person or even a doing person, you are a desiring person. Uh, our hearts drive us. And God is calling you here to train your heart, to direct it so that you more and more love what he loves and hate what he hates, so that you might keep your heart, from being set on evil things, as Israel did. And the story of Israel in the Exodus is like this huge red flag, this flashing neon warning sign to Christ's people, an example not to follow. I think it's really interesting what Paul highlights as you keep reading. He starts with the big one in verse 7, idolatry. You might know the story of the golden calf. Uh, The Israelites, right after being saved by God out of Egypt, they create their own idol to to worship. They set their hearts on, they put their hope in something other than the one true God who had borne them on eagles' wings out of Egypt. And consistently um, in the Old Testament, idolatry goes hand in hand with what Paul turns to next in verse 8 with sexual immorality. Uh, when we forsake God for idols, we worship created things rather than the creator. I think one of the first and most obvious ways this plan plays out is that we abandon his good design for sex and for relationships because we stop trusting that God is good and that his word can be trusted and that his way is best. And that's all connected, I think, to the last couple of things that Paul highlights. In verse 9, he says, we should not test Christ, come to him with a proud and untrusting heart that leads, I think, in verse 10, to this grumbling spirit. Fascinating, I think, how big a problem grumbling is. You know, it's up here with, with these big ones. And in the Old Testament, grumbling is something that's highlighted again and again in, in that Exodus story. We think of grumbling as a very minor thing, don't we? But a grumbling spirit was a key feature of Israel's idolatry. It wasn't a little thing. And you notice how what's, what's being said here. All of these things are under the judgment of God. God brought an end to these, and often by severe means. They are not the way to life. They are ways of living and of desiring that might feel good in the present but ultimately lead to death and destruction. And Paul writes in verse 11 that these things happened and were recorded as warnings for us. I think there's a real mystery here, this, and you see it through the Bible, this tension between the sovereignty of God and our responsibility as humans. Uh, The gospel message is a message of freedom and security. God is sovereign in his grace. He makes alive those he calls. He sustains them and perseveres them to the end, and you can trust him completely. So why is Paul worried about disqualification? (laughs) Well, there's more to say here. It's a big issue. But I think that one of the ways that God, in his sovereign grace, keeps his chosen people firm to the end, one of the ways he does that is to give them warnings like this. He's like a loving parent who warns and directs his children. So uh, those who are his, who he has called and renewed by his spirit, we will take these warnings to heart not to make us insecure, but we'll recognise that these warnings are actually God's good gift to us, and that through them he is disciplining us as his loved children. So these warnings shouldn't make us lose our confidence about where we stand with God, but they should make us lose our confidence in ourselves. And that's, I think, what Paul goes on to talk about. That's how Paul ends this section. Uh, He draws us to the one place where our confidence can rest securely. Verse 11, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. That's a beautiful phrase and an even more beautiful reality. See what's behind that? God has been faithful to his promise even through Israel's unfaithfulness. God has brought about the culmination of the ages in Christ. The great fulfilment and achievement that he has won in Christ has come on us in these last days. That's what he's saying. So don't trust in yourself. Verse 12, if you think you're standing firm, if you kind of have a way of going about your life it basically is entrusting yourself to yourself, you know. You're, you think that you're pretty good and standing firm and that you can carry it on. To be, watch out. Be careful that you don't fall. Don't run in your own strength. And he, he goes on to say, you are as weak and vulnerable to temptation as every other person. You are. You, you will never get to the point where you are past temptation until, until the new creation You'll never get to that point where you don't need to worry about your sin. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. We're all in this together. (laughs) This is common to everyone. But here's the wonderful hope for all who are in Christ. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So, when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. It's not saying that you won't be tempted, but it's just saying that God is, God's never, you can trust Him. He'll never put you in a position where your only option is to sin. It might require courage, it might be painful, but there will be a way of faithfulness to God that he will provide for you. And isn't it wonderful to know, brothers and sisters, that in Christ we have one who has, who has run the race before us, who was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin, who always took the right way out, and whose death covers all our failings, so we can always have a fresh start whose life secures our future, whose spirit helps us in our weakness. Um, Some of us are facing extremely testing circumstances. Some of us face the temptation of ongoing sin and habits of sin, habits of the heart. Some of us are just ground down by the pressures of life. God is faithful. You may not feel that you're strong enough, and you're right, but God is, and he has you in his hands, so trust him. Keep running the race to the end with your eyes on the true prize. I think as we go into next week's passage, we'll see sort of the ultimate prize, the ultimate way out that God has provided by, by his grace to have our hearts set on God and his glory in Christ but more on that next week uh, but this week what do we make of all this uh, one of the things sports psychologists will tell you is that the script you play in your head is very important it's very important and I th- in that kind of language what Paul's doing here is he's giving you a new script to play over in your head a new way to think about your life and to talk about in to, your, to yourself Truths to shape us, to keep in front of our hearts and minds. Um, I need help in this. And one of the ways I've tried to put this into practice, we'll see how this goes. Uh, I just share this just as a, maybe a, a spark to maybe spur you on to think about one way in which you could do it. Uh, I've written this a little note on my computer screen. It should be on the screen. It just says, Keep my eyes on the prize, an eternal crown. Help me hear the warning of those who fell. May I run with confidence in you alone, my faithful God. Just one attempt. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, in the coming weeks, as that's before me every day, it might start to shape my heart a little bit more, to tune it so that I might discipline myself to run this race for God. Just want, You will find other ways. Um... But it's important for us to do this, friends. Uh, What I've done now is I've written a slightly longer prayer. I just want to invite you all to pray with me as we finish. Words will be on the screen. And just as a way of responding yourself to God's word today, um, to come before the Lord in prayer and ask his help as we seek to do this. So um, feel free just to listen. Feel free to pray out loud if you would like as well. So let's pray. God of grace, train my heart to yearn for your new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells and not to be content with the fading crowns of this world. Help me to fix my eyes on Jesus. May I never take your grace for granted. May I heed the warnings of your word and flee from idolatry, from sexual immorality And from a thankless and grumbling heart. May my confidence not be in myself, but in you alone, my faithful God and Saviour. In temptation, humble me, so I might see and take your way out of escape, and not give in to sin. I have so far to go, but through Christ and by your Spirit, I always have a fresh start tune my heart to sing of your grace more and more each day until Jesus returns or I am called home through Christ alone. Amen.